This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 53. Today on our show, Michelle Giblin. Q did a contest when I was working there. You know, Mark would, there wasn't a producer in the studio with him. There wasn't an assistant with him screening calls or doing anything like that. So he literally had to play the spots that were on 8-track carts at the time and then count one, two, three, four, And then, you know, a couple of times I would be in dropping off a prize or something and he's like, ugh, what number was I at? Michelle started out at Q102 when she was 15 years old. We find out how she got the gig. We also find out how the station used to determine its playlists, what popular local band were her high school classmates at Oak Hills High School, and how La Rosa's developed their one number system back in the day. And uh, for marketing folks, uh, this is going to be fascinating. Uh, We talk about how marketing is so different back in the day than it is now, which is kind of obvious, but kind of to hear the details, it's uh, really interesting because back in the day you just had a phone and maybe somebody's address, and that was it. Uh, Also, does La Rosa's really taste better at Kings Island than it does in the other stores? Hmm, we discussed that as well. Be sure to listen for the promo code at the end of the episode. As always, you can use that to take 20% off your next Cincy shirts or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Uh, We start talking to Michelle. Uh, Darren and I do. Josh kind of drifts in, and well, here's our discussion with Michelle Giblin. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati. Cincinnati. I can't remember if it was you guys or not, but do you do uh, Zantigo's? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god, Funny. best ever. Funny story yeah. there. I do events for us too, mm-hmm. and uh, we will go to events. And people love Zantigos. Want to see a size? No. They love Zantigos. They don't want a shirt. <laughs> so we did our Shalilto Elves this Christmas. That was the only one that really struggled as far as our our, our old uh, the Hootapool sold, Little King sold, all of them sold. And Shalilto's, we'd be like, oh, Shalilto's Elves. I remember those. You want to see a size? No. So we no. called it the Zantigo of our Christmas sweaters. <laughs> oh, well, it's such a bo- like I almost think. So I went to Oak Hills, I went to UC, but I grew up, you know, I'm a uh-huh. West Sider in denial because my niece and I call it D-Block now. But anyway, yeah. um, you you should, you guys should target like high school reunions, like from the 80s, where Zantigo's was like, because they could give those away as like door prize party pack, like a Hootie D and a Zantigo's shirt. I mean, everybody would go crazy. Yeah. Hmm. Hey. There's, there. First one's free. There so wait, you go. Oak Hills. <laughs> but anyway. Oak Hills, do you know my friend Greg Martini? Yeah, well, I'll tell you. So Jeff Abbott, which I know he's not yeah. with them anymore, but Jeff and I, I've known him since we were in elementary school together. Oh my gosh, folks, so, Jeff Abbott, uh, lead, lead singer of Birdhouse, for those of you going way back, and was in Birdhouse with Greg Martini and Tom. Can't remember, can't remember Tom's last name. I'm sorry, Tom. But that's that's how I know that that lot. But so go on. I'm sorry. Birdha- no, no. So Birdhouse. So when they started, like in junior high, it was free reigns. 
they started as the band Free Reigns, and then I don't know when they decided to change it to Rusty Griswolds. I have no idea. Well, no, they were Birdhouse first. Before then, Free Reigns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were Free Reigns, I guess. Free Reigns I knew and them. Birdhouse when I moved here Rusty. in 91 or 2, they were already Birdhouse. Okay. And they'd already gone down to being a trio. Mm-hmm. Tom, Jeff, and Greg. Mm-hmm. And then uh, later, they formed Rusty, Gridwal- Rusty Griswolds as a side project to be a cover band, and now none of those three are in Rusty Griswolds. It's all oh, different. Oh, believe me. I it's knew all about different guys. all it's the like, drama it's like, uh, associated. There was lots of drama. Really? Oh, my God. Yeah, drama. because I think... Um, so, there were the... Uh, Kevin... No, Steve was in the band. Kevin does Madcap Puppet. He's a puppeteer. He became a puppeteer. Well, their dad was music teacher at Delhi Junior High. And so he their the Frisch's dad start helped them start Free Reigns because they put the band together then. But like I always my mom's so funny because we talk about Jeff Abbott sometimes and our first high, our first elementary school play, we were like in third grade. And it was a Charlie Brown play. And so we all had to audition for parts and Jeff won Snoopy. And so that's really, like, Snoopy's... It was a Charlie Brown, like, opera or, you know, musical, whatever. And that's the first time he sang on stage was when he was Snoopy. So my mom always says every time, you know, if we go somewhere and they're playing or whatever, she's like, oh, my God, there's Snoopy. I was there when it all began. He's a great songwriter, by the way. Oh, he's amazing. They're all unbelievably talented. Yeah, super talented. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really... Yeah, it's cool. Cincinnati is a great music town. It's just that people... Like, consumers only want the cover. They don't support the original. Back in the day, they yeah. didn't support yeah, the original yeah, was, writing as much as they should have. Yeah, I mean, they won a, a contest that went right when Conan O'Brien got the late, uh, the late, late show, or the mm-hmm. late, wait, late night with Conan O'Brien on mm-hmm. NBC. He had a, a, a contest, and they uh, finished pretty high up in the contest, mm-hmm. but they did not get invited to New York City. They, as they said in the liner notes <laughs> of their album, they said, we just got some t-shirts and that was it. But still, pretty impressive. Oh, know. way impressive. And, you know, you think about, like, the other guys that were my age that I grew up with from elementary school uh, was Tim Timmy Goldrainer of The Menus. Yes. So it's like, and I don't know if all those guys were from Oak Hills in the beginning that he worked with, but... Those are two pretty darn prominent. Yeah. You know, and and I know Tim has made a li- you know, made a living from from it because they, you know, went through the whole Midwest, but you know, just thinking about just from our small class, you know, yeah. the Greg amount of plays, talent. Greg still plays in uh, G your band smells terrific. Speaking of cover bands, so he's still active. I don't know what Tom's doing. Uh, he and- helped organize our last reunion. Because he's my, he and I are the same age. So I met Greg when we got to high school because he went to Bridgetown Junior High. Okay. He's a Delhesian. So. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah, it's funny. Greg, th- I'm like, oh my God, you still have the best head of hair I've ever seen. I'm <laughs> so does. jealous. Mine looks half the size of yours, and it, yours looks even better. You suck. Yeah. I, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that really killed, you know, Birdhouse was the fact that they were out and trying to promote themselves at a time when uh, grunge was really the thing, and that's all anybody was really looking for. Yeah. And harder rock act, and here comes this trio doing these poppy, funny songs. V- mm-hmm. Very, they might be giants-ish. I know a, a comparison they resisted, but yeah. was apt, and they were influenced by certainly. But and people that just not have time for that nonsense. And sadly, so if you can find a copy of Serendipity Do, a CD by Birdhouse, you should pick that up. 
or I'll message Greg yeah. and ask him, right? Because yeah, it was yeah. Greg and Birdhouse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Should, Greg wrote I'll a couple of songs on it. Jeff wrote most of the songs on it, but Tom and Greg also contributed some great songs. It's like 21 songs, not a dud in the lot. Yeah, I'm yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Come on. So, Oak Hills High School, do you grow up wanting to do what? Eventually end up in radio, but what do you what do you want to do when you're growing up? Oh, well, I really wanted to be either a veterinarian or a school psychologist or psychiatrist. And um, when I was 15 years old, a friend of mine... Do you want me to tell my story? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so um, a neighbor friend of mine, her older sister had worked at the corporate headquarters for Taft Broadcasting at the time. And Taft Broadcasting, this was back in the 80s, they owned and operated um, Q102 Radio, 55 KRC AM radio, and then also Channel 12, Local 12. And um, Taft's offices, their corporate offices are where the WLWT Channel 5 studios are now on Young Street. So anyway, her sister was working as an admin at the corporate office, and um, her sister had gotten wind of somebody at Q102 was trying to organize a group of music research people to help do music research in greater Cincinnati. And it was only supposed to be a three-month job. And so my friend and then another neighbor of ours who was, they were both a year older than me at Oak Hills, um, the three of us decided to apply for it. So we applied. Um, I fibbed on my application because I was only 15 at the time. I wasn't 16. And um, all three of us got the job, which was great. Um, made for less awkward moments and what it was at the time was Randolph Radio Research so it was called um, it was called that because Randy Michaels who was operations manager at Q102 at the time named it after himself because it was his (laughs) philosophy his approach for music research so when we started our first day our first day we had a long table with five rotary dial phones five telephone books in front of us um, in the Q102 prize closet. And so we were hired to 30, 35 hours a week, just smile and dial all day long and qualify people, try and get people on the phone, ask them if they were interested in giving us their feedback on what radio stations they listened to um, over a week's time, which one of those stations were their favorite or they thought that they listened the most to. And then based on those qualifications, so if they said Q102, WKRQ, or, you know, one of the jocks on at the time, they would qualify. So it would be, you know, one of our favorite listeners. Then once we pre-qualified them, we in turn asked them if they'd be willing to stay on the phone for another three minutes and judge songs for us. So we had, you know, clips of songs, um, probably maybe 20 or 30 at the time. And those listeners that we had on the other end of the phone, and, they, and not at any time did they know that we were calling on behalf of Q102. It was all Randolph Radio Research. And um. so they gave us their feedback, and then we computed, hand-computed, by the way, all of the feedback from favorite, like, average, um, don't like, never heard. Um, and then based on that research on a weekly basis, it helped determine what radio or what songs Q102 would play. So it was a really important part of how the music director, the program director at the radio station decided what 
songs to play on a normal, you know, top 40 CHR playlist at the time. And that wasn't the only source of research and feedback. Um, you know, they used radio and records, Billboard Top 100, and then, you know, record promoters would come in and out, you know, pitching songs and things like that. But it was, you know, it became a relevant part of what the station played on a weekly on a weekly basis. So that was really super cool to be a part of. Yeah, I didn't so know it still, at the time. That's still the dark ages where I can actually select the songs they played, huh? Well, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's you know, it, the business, the industry, radio industry has changed so much today compared to what it was. And, um, you know, having that connection with that listener and really listening to them and then using you know, what they say in a relevant way to help build listenership. It's just, you know, it was really, really cool to be a part of. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time because, as you know, I took the job because Q102 was my favorite radio station. I love Mark Sebastian. I love Chris O'Brien and Janine Coyle and Steve Hawkins and everybody. Um, so it was super cool for me to be around the personalities that I loved and listened to. Yeah. You know, I was a fan before I was an employee. So how was that pounding the phones I mean, were people... Uh, so you're calling landlines to landlines back then, right? People don't have yeah. cell phones. Right. Uh, so we're calling landlines. We're calling their home phones. We did it Monday through Friday, Monday through Thursdays, like 4 o'clock in the afternoon until 9 o'clock at night. On Saturdays for like 4 or 5 hours in the midday. And, you know, probably... And that was really, again before telemarketers like pounded your world every which way yeah, I was wondering if people were more receptive to just talk to whoever well, especially about music. Yeah, people because it seems people would want to talk about music back then because I think I even participated in one of those surveys once and yeah. Randy was always big on that too Very, even after I yeah. moved here uh, they were looking for um, he was over at Clear Channel mm-hmm. they started Channel Z uh-huh. and they figured you know what do people listen to in this market it's 97X so he, he put the call out for people to listen to alternative music we all met at a banquet room in some hotel somewhere, and they thought, we'll just graft the clear channel idea, we'll steal the 97X, whatever that makes the secret sauces, and we'll, off we go. Mm-hmm. And it failed miserably, and he could never understand why. Yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, going back to your question as far as getting people to stay on the phone, I think Cincinnati is a really unique city and in in the 80s when you think about the person the radio personalities or even the tv personalities that you watched or listened to you know you felt passionate about them like they were superstars back in the day you know they were unreachable like this really cool cool thing and i i think that people you know cared about the music it led to emotion passion memories all of those sort of things tied together and i think that's part of why you know we ended up talking mostly to women on the phone i mean q was more of a and it still is a women-based station but women are kind of more apt to you know tie that emotion to the radio station so that was it was super cool experience it was great had an opportunity to meet and hang out with a lot of different people um when i was you know when i gained the courage to ask for a pair of concert tickets or backstage (laughs) passes um that first three months anyway but um the cool thing about randolph radio research is i had probably been there like two years and then randy that's when randy decided to leave and go to jcor so he went across the pond and it was complete craziness because the management and leadership teams of Taft had no idea um, that he was leaving and so we were 
not allowed to talk to him, not to have any interaction with him or any team members that he took with him from Taft over to J-Corps. And then we renamed our research division um, Richmond Radio Research. Um, but what Randy did, once he got over to J-Corps, it goes back to what you were talking about, he started developing that research platform, that research idea for every station in the J-Corps family at the time. So, you know, he may have done oldie surveys. He may have done top 40 surveys. So then he started in the market doing it for as many radio stations in the market. And then he expanded across the U.S. to do, um, you know, that localized uh, weekly research, but then also the auditorium testing, which you referenced, where we would get a thousand women in a room. We would pay them for two and a half hours of their time. They did not know what radio station we were representing because you wanted to keep it all clean and clear. And they would rate 3,000 hooks of songs. And then we would take that research and look at our overall playlist. But then he would also, you know, sell that research to, you know, smaller market top 40 stations that couldn't afford to do the auditorium yeah. test and pay a thousand women, you know, 25 bucks a pop besides all the manpower that took to kind of pull it together and screen women and, you know, get yeah. them in. So, and then that's what became critical mass media. Oh, okay. So, See, yeah. when I did it, he pulled back the curtain at the end and said, we're from J-Corps, we run Channel Z, we want to know why. Mm -hmm. And so he invited us to stay after some mm -hmm. of us to say, to talk more about it. And he was just baffled by the fact that in the research, people said they didn't like air personalities very much, but they love 97X's air personalities. And he couldn't make the connection. And I tried to tell him it's because we want people to know what they're talking about, but just don't babble incessantly. And that was right. just a hard thing for them to wrap their heads around. So they just, just went with no DJs on Channel Z yeah. as a result. Yeah. Well, and I think shortly after Channel Z, I don't know what year that started, but that's when... 93-ish? 93-ish, uh, 94, 94, maybe? 93-94, probably, you're right. Um, and that's when I got back over with Randy at J-Corps and Clear Channel on the sales side. So I had spent 10 years, ended up spending 10 years at Q, left there as marketing director, took about six months off, then worked on the client side for a while, worked for La Rosa's corporate office when they launched the One Number System, which was great. Um, great marketing experience. And then Randy and um, the general manager of VBN at the time, who I knew well from working at La Rosa's, Jackie Brom, um, invited me to grab lunch at the bar at Mount Adams Bar and Grill. And she said, what do you think about selling? And I'm like, I don't know how to sell. Are you kidding? And she said, are we allowed to cuss on this? Sure, go for it. <laughs> and she said, Bull Mish. She said, you sell yourself every day and everything you do, you can do this. And so then I got back over to J-Corps on the sales side, specifically with the Fox and EBN. So I so go back I to the, the, the uh, one number thing for La Rosa's. Because sure. when I moved here, I'd lived in Pittsburgh and Cleveland before that. And I'd never seen anything like that before, where a company used just one, uh, a food company used one number that you could call to get delivery. I was fascinated. Three, four, seven, <laughs> one, 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 right. one, yeah. La Rosa. So, yeah. it was, so, <laughs> this is going back probably, gosh, 25, 27 years or so. I wasn't looking for a position at La Rosa's. I had run into Carol La Rosa, who's married to Mark, and I said, hey, Carol, I said, I love doing all the promotions with Q102 and La Rosa's and that sort of thing. I said, you know, have Mark call me if he ever needs help. I know La Rosa's does so much in the community with special events. I'd love to just get out and be around people. 
And so then two days later, Mark calls and he's like, hey, let's meet for lunch. So I roll into the pizzeria on Budno and the entire management team is at the table with Mr. La Rosa. And buddy. they want, and yes, right. yeah, well, we say Mr. La Rosa. Yeah. Oh, but okay. he's buddy to you guys, but <laughs> Mr. La Rosa to me. So, um, <laughs> and then we, they said, you know, we're going to expand the marketing division. We need someone that knows media and knows the market. We are on the cusp of launching something really huge for the company um, that'll take us to the next level, and that was the one number system. Um, so I started 45 days before the launch of one number. Um, but the idea, the idea came from being able to, you know, jump into the delivery game and the delivery game in a very determined way. And so what the management team did is they worked with a, I believe they worked with a consultant because this is before I came on board. Um, to kind of research the possibility of doing something like this, you know, a central system. And the consultant had uncovered a company in Canada called Pizza Pizza. And oh, Pizza uh, Pizza. And Little Caesar's sister company. Probably. I, yeah. don't, I didn't even know. Yeah, yeah. So Pizza Pizza had like 3,000 locations across Canada and they delivered pizza and cigarettes. That's it. And so, so yeah, pizza and cigs. No beer, just pizza and cigs. There's like a beer thing missing in my book, but anyway, um, I mean, bats. no, yeah, I know. Um, We're so, yeah, I know We're exactly. Bacon. Well, it's probably much more now. So Get back bacon on the pizza. Yeah. So then the management team, <laughs> through the consultant, you know, set up, you know, a think tank with the powers that be at Pizza Pizza to really say, okay, what. What do you do? What does your existing software look like? What do we need to do, La Rosa's, to adapt that? And um, that's really how the, the one number system started. And obviously, La Rosa's one number was much more involved in detail because it wasn't just pizza, you know, pizza and cigarettes. It was pizza, hoagies, dinners, salads, you know, the whole the whole nine yards. So it was a much more... Um, expanded piece of software that allowed them to do that and um, besides the opportunity that it provided for the consumer you know you've got before that back in the day you were calling whoever answered the phone at the pizza place on your home <laughs> phone dial you know Hoping not through you had it the app. right location that right. delivered to your house right exactly and you're talking to somebody that's trying to pull a million pizzas out of the oven at the same time at 618 on a Friday night yeah. and you know who knows if he understood your order <laughs> or anything else and so the one number system allowed, you know, you had one operator that spoke to that one customer, got their order right, and then delivered that order directly to the pizza table at the store so that the people that worked at the store level could focus on one thing and it would be, you know, the right quality, the right pizza to the right person that ordered it. Um, and so that's kind of the front side. The back side is that it really allowed us to look at um, hiring practices, you know, favorites as far as product ordering, where our clients, where the customers were coming from, how often they were ordering from us, um, why if one side of the street, and again, this is way before the digital age, you know, why before, uh, why one side of the street in the same neighborhood, same um, value house, same number of kids, same number of dogs, you know, one side would use us three times a week for pizza, and the other side of the street might use us once or twice a year. So database of information that was available to us was great. So back then, 
we would send out our delivery drivers with the door hangers on that side of the street oh, to get yeah. that side of the street. We're like, they're the same people. Why are they not using us as, as much? So um, <laughs> That's crazy. Well, and you know, the, the, cra- the really funny thing about it is, so we, I work with clients to help sell digital marketing programs, digital delivery, geo, geofencing and geotargeting. And um, when I talk to a client about digital, digital platforms and the ability to do that, I can see when they start to look like a deer in headlights or they glaze over a little bit because it's hard to know it all. But when I say it's just like a door hanger, I said, except this is a virtual door hanger that you're dropping on someone's doorstep, you know, to have them buy a pizza or whatever. And then it's like an aha moment. They totally relate to it. So I still use the door hanger. Uh, word, <laughs> two well, words, whatever. I hope to get Mr. LaRosa or, <laughs> or Michael or Mark on the podcast at some point. But can you? Tell I'm your us, man. Can you tell All us right. why is the why is La Rosa's so much better at Kings Island than anywhere else? <sighs> that has been a never-ending question since the '70s, probably or early '80s. <laughs> I had noticed. Well, that your thought, face tells me. I don't know. Do I'm you agree not, with that? I feel like yeah, you're I always doing better that. at Kings Island. Hmm. I don't know. I'm willing you, to try. I'm, I'm not making that up, right? I could tell by your this reaction is, that that's no, a thing. No, you're not. You're not making it up. Huh. It's the same recipe. It's the same products. It's the same everything else. It's just, you know, there's there may be a couple of different things at play. I mean, if if you want to get in the weeds a little bit, because. Your dine-in experience with La Rosa's, I mean, the goal is to get the dine-in and the delivery experience to be the same. Sure. But it's close to impossible, you know, depending on where you live. Distance, and yeah. Exactly. And, you know, when you're at somewhere like Kings Island or they also have a franchise location at Coney Island as well, it's just, you know, it's right out of the oven. It doesn't go in a box per se. And if it is in a box, it's maybe in a box for two minutes before you take it out and start to eat the whole thing you know so it's like all of that time plays into i think plus i mean you got the endorphins going because you just got off a roller coaster right you're with papa smurf and captain caveman (laughs) i mean everything tastes better with them around (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome right so but you're right you're you're right and they i love pfs i wish people could have seen his (laughs) Reaction to that? Of, like, I was trying to recall. We've had we've it. had 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 it there, and but I don't recall it necessarily being any better than the one on Beachmont. <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know how many people I've had that conversation huh. with, but it's, most of the time people are like, "Yeah, it just does taste better there." Well, and it's just it's like fun. a really really cold beer at your favorite concert too. You know, it's like, gosh, I can't have this beer; just tastes better. Too. So I think it's a little bit about the experience, but the product is amazing, and the Larosas are awesome people. I love them. I yeah, I'll save that story for another day. But uh, I got the I got to meet them and and sit down with them for a little bit a couple weeks ago, and it was. Very Did you really? Yeah. They are, you know, you're gonna make me cry, but they are just the most amazing family, and they give back so much to the community. And yeah. there's probably eighty percent of what they do that the market the you know consumer doesn't know about and they just give tirelessly and selflessly um to a lot of different nonprofit organizations and you know me to be you know having been part of the team as well you know everything i felt about la rosa's you know as a fan and that was my favorite pizza just was you know even 
confirmed more so once you know I was inside inside yeah <laughs> I also wonder, I'm sure you know Albert Sambale do you know does that name oh, ring a bell to you? well dude I'm going back this is like 25 years yeah. ago when I so who who's Albert so Albert is a guy that I met that I also don't have on the podcast but he basically met Buddy LaRosa when Buddy went to uh, Africa to watch the Muhammad Ali uh, I think it was Muhammad Ali George Foreman fight maybe I don't know but he was a young boy there he ended up coming to the states and uh, was reconnected with with Buddy who got him a job and he sort of takes him around and helps out with all the boxing and all the stuff that uh, that Buddy's into with the with the nonprofits. He's got it's got an amazing story. Well, but again, a, a story for another day. <laughs> oh yeah, and he's nonstop. I mean, I, I forget how old he is. He might be like eighty six, and you'd never you'd never know it. I ran into him. My office is in Blue Ash, and I ran into him at Mount Washington Chile and he was you know talking to a gentleman meeting about something whether it was golden gloves or yeah you know another one of the charities that he works on <laughs> but he's yeah he's awesome and wow. his family his kids are amazing you yeah. know you you'd never never know they had La Rosa, La Rosa as their last name yeah. they just do their thing yeah it's uh it's funny cuz i was introduced to him and uh, he like I was just like, hey, it's great to meet you. And the first thing he said to me is he kind of looks me up and down. And he's like, what are you about two sixty? I was like, well, no filter. I, said, I forgot that part. Yeah. I said, uh, I was like, yeah. And uh, he's like, what? Maybe like forty? I was like, I'll, I'll be forty two in March. He's like, you better get that under control. <laughs> and I was Dang. like, I go, I'm, I'm getting body shamed by Buddy Larosa, and I go. I said, I um, uh, yeah, I go, well, if we're being honest with each other, most of this is probably your fault. <laughs> <laughs> and he started laughing. <laughs> and he was That's like, the great. older you get, the harder it is to get it off. And I was like, did my wife call you before right, I walked into this room? Conspiracy <laughs> intervention. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but he was, funny. he was so nice. I, I, I really hope to get them on here because I, I just had the best time talking to them. Oh, you would love it, and and they would love it too. So yeah, we'll talk about that. All right, sure. so let's talk about let's talk about music again. I apologize because I got <laughs> in here late, and I don't want to like like what what you did back then versus like the technology that's available to you now. Like, how much easier would that have made your job back then to, to have oh. the data? It, like, you really had to hustle back then, right? I oh mean, to, my gosh, we had to hustle about everything because you know. Just not only from the research side, but from the marketing and promotion side of the station. Before you're talking about like before technology. Yeah, okay. like I'm. I just picture. You know, I can see yeah, like she went from a rotary phone to geofencing. Yeah, yeah, you know I mean, right yeah. in my lifetime. Like, well, yeah, it was in between there. Yeah, I, I mean, I can just picture myself. You know, like when I when I walked in here and I heard like Steve Hawkins. You know, like I could just picture myself in my room at you know ten or eleven years old, holding my tape recorder up to the radio, waiting for the song to come back on, hoping they wouldn't talk over the intro right. to mess up my my homemade <laughs> mixtape. Mm -hmm. Like it's just. It's crazy to think how far it's come since then. Oh, it's absolutely nuts. So if you go back to what a music list, what a winner list, a pr the promotion of a station, how it happened. I mean, 
we had to, like I said earlier, you know, hand compute all of the responses to the hundred surveys that we did, the hundred music surveys that we did on a weekly basis. And then we would hand deliver that to the program director, you know, after we finished. When I started in research, after the end of that initial three months, I talked Jim Fox into letting me stay on at the station and helping out with promotions or prizes or events or blowing up balloons, whatever, um, because I was really loving it. So then I started to do um, deciding, you know, what prizes we were going to give away on an hourly basis. So back then we gave away a prize an hour every day. So I had a 24-hour winner giveaway packet. So it was the jock would do a contest. So I had to hand write because we only had like one typewriter in the whole programming and promotion department. If anybody remembers that's listening, what a typewriter is. Um, <laughs> so I mean, so then we had to handwrite what the prize of the hour was. Then we had name, address, just as like, you know, your hand registering at an expo or something like, or a festival or whatever. And so name, address, age, zip code, telephone number, if they needed to pick up the prize, if it was too big to mail or whatever. And then at the end of each day, I would come in and I would have the winner's list on my desk. So then I would take the winner's list, which was handwritten out, and I would type up individual mailing labels. So every day I had 24 winners. I typed 24 labels. Then I had to go to the prize closet, grab the prizes, um, <laughs> put them in envelopes, get them ready for mail, run them, and then put them out the door. So that was just... Just that. Think of that. And that's done in an instant now and can be done for the next six months. I mean, you can plan through a computer all those digital forms and cross-reference people that have won before and blah. It's so sick. That, well, sick in a good way. But so I did that for so long, five, seven years, I guess, that most likely... I can tell you, you can name a part of town, and I can tell you exactly what zip code it is just off the top of my head. There are, and it was before that we had limits. We had limits on, we had limits on the number of times. It was before that they had limits on the number of times that you could win. So we had the contest people that would win like three, four limits? times a day. Like, every I never day. won. I never got, I was lucky to get a. Oh, was a, a ring. It was you, always a You busy had to dial the right time. And when, when it was a rotary phone, I remember you would like, there was like a, I don't know, it was like an urban legend or whatever, but you would have to, you let go of that last number at the, like my brother figured right, out. Right, I let, know. Let go of that number at the left. People are feverishly looking up rotary phone right now as they're listening <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, exactly. What are talking about? And you let I go of, right at the right ring. time, and then it would ring, and then you'd, you'd hang up like before, oh, it's uh, all kinds of stuff. Didn't you, didn't you ever figure all that stuff out? <laughs> I mean, I was ecstatic if I got through to put a request in, let alone I never got through to win a contest. Oh, I never did either before I, I started working there. I tried because I was such a super fan. But They'd be like, so, studio, if it, I remember. Yeah. I'd be like, oh my God, will you please play? <laughs> oh, I know. So it, or, or then you get, like the one time I think I called and I got through to the studio, I was so excited that Mark Sebastian picked up the phone that I disconnected myself. <laughs> and I'm like, shoot! I Mark can't believe Sebastian. I did that. I know. So, but um, when I talk, you know, like sometimes if you're listening to stations today, they may, um, you know, they say only one winner per household or only one winner per month or only one registration per month or per year or whatever. So, you know, 
after that first five years, they started putting limits on, like, you could only win, like, one time a month or whatever, just to give as many people a chance as possible and not just the people that had mastered the phone <laughs> the phone deal to get through. Well, but, I'm still amazed. Like, I tra- I do stand-up comedy, and I drive, mm-hmm. you know, I travel around, and they have me do morning radio, and a lot of times they'll give away tickets to the show. Mm-hmm. And I'm still amazed that in 2019, if it's the 10th caller... They have to answer the phone ten times. Like there's not a system that just tells them who the tenth caller is. They're like, "Up, oh, you call one. Up, oh, you call two." And I'm like, "Wow, is this still? Yeah. Like, do you still have to do that?" Yeah, yeah. It's um. It's probably some legal loophole. They have to. Yeah, like I answer the phone <laughs> ten times or something, or maybe that, just or we the just stumbled equipment. onto something here. <laughs> <laughs> well, but sometimes too, like from then until today, like if. Q did a contest when I was working there. You know, Mark would... There wasn't a producer in the studio with him. There wasn't an assistant, you know, with him screening calls or doing anything like that. So he literally had to play the spots that were on 8-track carts <laughs> yeah. um, at the time and then count one, two, three, four, And then, you know, a couple of times I would be in dropping off a prize or something and he's like, oh, what number was I at? Well, I think I was at 17 because, yeah. you know, you had to go up to 102 to get a winner. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So. Answer the phone 102 times. Yeah. So. I worked at a small radio station in Pittsburgh. We were out in the suburbs. It was alternative stations. We had a very small audience, but and we would do would be the 10th caller, and it would literally be the same person calling because there's only like 500 people. <laughs> it, was like, it was like a sitcom, though, but I would say, you're one. <laughs> Year two, <laughs> just yeah. to keep the integrity of it, and just well, saying, right. like, yeah, because yeah. I didn't want to get any kind of trouble. I'm like, <laughs> legitimately well, have to answer the phone ten oh times. Oh gosh, that's right. hilarious. <laughs> I know. So, but because I did so many of those play, uh, winners lists, you know, I became the zip code rain man. You know, even today, <laughs> even today, if I have, if I'm doing, you know, some sort of targeted program on Facebook or whatever and my interns will ask me like where do you want to do it and then I'll see them trying to look it up and I, I just go <laughs> off the top of my head 41042 Florence 41051 independent you know just and they're like how do you know this and it's because <laughs> of that you know repetitive behavior because the jocks you know they're doing a million things like we just said they're counting 102 callers they're playing the cards they're getting ready for music they're figuring out on the handwritten plug cards that i did which i write like a kindergartner because i wrote on a ruler on three by five cards messages for them to say so they would have 12 messages across the board and they would rotate those messages so like what's happening at the request line you know listen to request line opens up at eight blah contest riverbend concert coney island two for one so they were all plug cards that were handwritten versus today that you just la 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 type it up and make it pretty liners ours were in a big binder so you'd have to read like oh you guys were organized on the clock it was yeah yeah that was just the way i did it in college and we ended up doing it in at the station in pittsburgh so because you were like a a go-getter and and you put in all the effort do you think it it was better that you were working back at that time because now it's it's so much easier to have all that data at your fingertips that you that people may not have to work as hard to have that data does that make sense like like it seems like to succeed back then like you had to put in the effort in the hours where now you know you could get a printout of everything that you need you're using more of your brain 
Um, and I think you're thinking more. Um, I think, you know, I don't want to sound like, well, back then it was different than today. You know, everybody's got it so easy, you know, and just like, ugh, I don't want to be like my great grandfather. But, um, you know, it taught you because you were physically involved and engaged in it and doing it. And for me, I'm a very, I'm very much a visual learner. Like even in today's tech age, I still have, you know, a planner that I write in because I need to see it, read it, you know, and, um, I learned a lot by do, by doing, um, versus having something else computed for me. You know, I learned about audience. There were things that I learned about then that I didn't even realize until 20 years later, you know, audience behaviors, you know, emotional tie to music, um, how that ties into marketing, how that relationship that the radio station had at the time with that listener is so important, like to a regular business. So it's all, so I've done the same thing since I was 15 years old. It's just using what I learned to be able to teach clients how to relate to their consumer, their recruit, their whatever, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not rambling, right? No. Okay, cool. On the other side of that, does like the, the big data aspect of it now kind of remove the anecdotal experience and maybe make the data better, or do you still need that kind of intuition from actually talking to people on the phone and you know saying what do you like about the station and what do you not? I think it's really, really important to keep that human connection. I think really today, and I don't even know if radio stations use it like this, but it's a lot of work to go out and do a live broadcast of a show or a two-hour remote somewhere at a client's place of business or at Kings Island or whatever. But that is a tremendous opportunity to connect one-to-one with the people that are your biggest fans. Yeah. And the information that they can share for you, share with you is priceless. Yeah. And, you know, even with all the technology, being able to talk to people and learn as much as you can about why they feel the way they do or this experience or that experience tied to your brand is so critical. Yeah. When we first started, we were online only for a long time. Yeah. And uh, when we finally opened our first place or started doing events where people could buy the shirts... Darren and I were both shocked at how different the people who were buying our product was versus who we pictured was buying our product. Uh huh. What yeah. was the difference? Tell me. Oh, I we were interested. like age well, for well, we sure. Were, we were just designing shirts that we thought were funny, and mm-hmm. uh, so we were like, we just assumed that we were, you know, we were older than college kids. We were like, man, I bet all these college kids are loving this stuff, or you know, we're the cool hip guys drinking drinking shirts for their parties. Yeah. That's right. And uh, oh yeah, we had. We did a couple couple events, and it was just like, huh, I thought your kid would enjoy our stuff, but apparently you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah our, our crowd was way older than uh, we had anticipated. So that was your big but, aha moment. Yeah, totally. What event, was what, like, wow. what was your first event that you learned that? that? Oh, man, let's see, probably the, the, the T-shirt fest on Fountain Square. They, uh, mm-hmm. they just had, they just called us and said, hey, we're thinking about having a T-shirt festival, and, uh, you know, you guys are in Dayton, Kentucky, and why don't you come sit up for a day? And so we're like, okay. And <laughs> we just, you know, had like a fold-out table. We didn't have any signage or anything. And, uh, yeah, I don't I mean, Let's see how it goes. Yeah, but. I mean, that was before Facebook. And I'm just like, man, without Facebook, what? where would we be? 
Because it, it is amazing how much we just, like, rely on that and all the information that they collect for people and all that stuff and how we just go there and, yeah, set up an ad. and Tari, it, it shows up right on the homepage of the person that we wanted well, to show up Yeah, on. and, and I mean, I know. I think you'd be, you'd be pounding the pavement. You know, going to events like T-Shirt Fest on Fountain Square, probably four out of seven days a week. If you, if your audience couldn't order online and you only maybe had one location, but there were so many people that wanted your product. I mean, that's that's what you would do. That's the only way yeah. you would do it. Yeah. Really. Know I know. That. It is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. But I try so hard not to turn into... Like, my dad used to say, oh, well, you're so lucky because you get to skate at Western Rollerama with two skates. When I was growing up, I only had one skate. You know? I'm just like, seriously? Um, Back back to that human element, though, like, with Spotify, you know, my kids listen to it. I I listen to it sometimes just because it's more convenient than, you know, pulling out my iPod or my phone or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think it's so cute when I listen to The Clash, then it says, hey, P.F., you might like this group called The Ramones. (laughs) And then, like, <laughs> you have to know that I'm a 52-year-old man and that I know why I'm listening to this music. I mean, uh-huh. I, I appreciate the help, Spotify, but it's like they have, on the one hand, they have all this data on me. At the same time, no clue. Facebook. Tell your friends you're watching the Red Sox-Yankees game, PF. Why? I'm an Indians fan. I'm not watching that game. Yeah. What are you, mm-hmm. nuts? So It's algorithms. It's, well, it's, it's playing the numbers. Right, right. Exactly. It's guessing I'm watching the Yankees. Because I talk a lot about baseball. I must be watching the Yankees and Red Sox. No. They're making an assumption right. based on what they know about yeah. you so far. And and that's one thing that we talk to clients about that I'm sure you guys have experienced is that, you know, obviously with the rise of social media and multiple channels, there are many more ways that you can connect with your audience. But a lot of companies um, concentrate on talking at their audience. And again, this is where I go back to my relationship in my experience at the radio station, you know, when you were listening to a jock, you always felt like Mark Sebastian was talking directly to you or Steve Hawkins was talking directly to you with you, not at you. And so many companies that we've either been invited into or I just come across, you know, they're constantly pushing out this information on their agenda instead of flipping it and speaking to their customers the way their customers want to be spoken to. I know that's deep. Uh, no, I think we're guilty of that. I think we totally have so much stuff on our end that we're just like, yeah, get it out, get it out, get it out. Yeah. And, oh my, but yeah, I you think you guys are really people. good at what, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're really good at reading the right things that people will be interested in. You know what I mean? Like, Things that people are the talking pulse. about. Yeah, yes, that's a good. Yeah, that's the right word. Word man. I, I I wanted to go back to what you said about the difference between the personalities back then because mm-hmm. um, you're absolutely right. They were like celebrities. I remember Norma Rashid came to my elementary school and I thought she was a movie star. Oh, like, it's like the best thing ever. Yeah. The best thing ever, and yeah, those. You felt like you knew them. You felt like they were your older brother or your friend or, you know, you felt like you had a relationship with those people. And there's a talent there. Like, there's a skill Mm -hmm. that's required to have that connection. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's back then and today, you know, to a certain degree, 
a lot of stations have gone kind of auto where they'll pre-record shows and thing you know yeah. their their yeah. shows or they'll do or multi-market the, they're not even the yeah. same city yeah yeah they'll do multiple market voiceover work and <laughs> and i would say if i had to guess because i've seen it a little bit i think that it will come back a little bit i think it has to come back a little it bit it does because because it, why would you listen to that radio station? And this is just one person's opinion. I why would like you listen to that radio station when you can get that piece of music 12 other places? Whenever you want it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what what is that station giving me that I'm not, I can't get anywhere else? Thank you. Those commercials yes. and giveaways. Yeah, well, that's what I don't, I can't, <laughs> I cannot wrap my head around, you know, because it, you know, you hear it from, people who aren't in radio but it's always like it's a dying medium and I'm, and I'm thinking if that's the case the one thing that they have over everything else over your iPhone over Spotify over satellite is local like mm-hmm. w- like I turn on some of these stations in the car you know and I just the the, the little bit that they do talk it's it's not personable it's not like you know um engaging and it, there's no reason to keep listening because if all you're going to do is play music I can hear that music I don't have to wait for a song to come on I can hear it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. other places and I just I can't figure out why radio stations won't embrace that like what you just said understand they can get their music or sports national sports talk Mm-hmm. a thousand other places so why not locally focus on building a good product that people will want to listen to because that's the only place they can get it well I think what is ha- a couple of things have happened one you know if you go back to the 80s the people that owned radio and television and entertainment um, entities or you know stations they were broadcast people they grew up in it it was in their blood they understood it um, and they knew how to to run it. You go 10 or 20 years from that and stations in any market or multiple stations or clusters of stations um, went up for sale. And so then you'd get, you know, <laughs> VCs or, you know, investors that would, you know, buy that group of radio stations and they they understood the opportunity to make revenue for the business, but they didn't really understand the business of radio, the business of media. And that makes a big, makes a big difference. And they're only, they may not be looking at listenership. They may not be looking at the research. They may only be looking at the bottom line. And how can I do the same thing or as much of the same thing to make as much money as I can? I mean, and I don't have, I don't want to bash just radio industry. I mean, any business is like... Exactly. It's all taken over by attorneys. Yeah, any any business is like that. Um, But I really saw it happen um, when it went from peeps that knew the industry to just investors that were making... wanted to make money. Yeah. Yeah, It kind of backfired, right? I mean, in some ways that well, yeah, the people who were only looking to make money ended up not making money because they didn't understand what they were, like how to be successful in the. Well, yeah, I mean, any any company, any industry, your success comes from 
your fans, your consumers, your users. And when you start to segment that or that audience has other places to go, you need to stay ahead of those changes and adapt to that and start to do things differently to continue to relate to your audience. You know, you see that with companies that haven't adapted or adopted digitally to the experience for their consumers. You know, they're left behind. They're out of business. I mean, you know, look at retail. Gone. How's that for a sound effect? Or or look at retail and look at us. Isolate that. (laughs) We're kind of an exception to that rule because we try to provide something that they can't just go to Amazon or I mean in a weird way they kind of can yeah. Yeah, yeah. but uh, but you see my point like you know it seems like the shift was moving away from retail right when we decided we wanted to jump in because we felt like we could provide a, a product and a, and a service that would get people to come to us if that was the only way they could get it well and you knew at least you were thinking about it. You may not have known it at the time, but you knew what you needed to do to relate to your audience to grow to grow your business. So we're kind of heavy. I didn't think oh, this yeah. podcast was going to get this heavy. Yeah, that's no. what we do. We just right. talk. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, we don't have a whole list of questions. We just fire away. That's All right. it. So for people to don't know, what do you do now? Okay, we'll give you a chance to plug your business here. You've been a good soldier. Spilling the tea on... Sure, (laughs) sure. So um, I work as managing director of a company called Business DNA Group. Uh, We've had the company for 16 years. So originally when I started the business, it was brand approach. Um, Again, completely by accident. So when I tell my son, he was freaking out when he was like a sophomore in high school because he's like, oh my gosh, I have to decide what college I'm going to go to and what I'm going to study and... You know what I wanted. You know what I want my career to be, and blah blah blah. And I'm like, dude, don't put your, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself. I'm like, I'm still, fi- I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. But I am enjoying every, you know, each and every step of the way. So when I talk about brand approach, when I left, so my son's 21 now. I left when he was two and a half to take about a year off with him, and. I did have my cell phone at the time, and I'm never going to change my cell phone number ever in my entire life. Um, So clients that I had worked with either at Q102 or vendors that I had worked with through La Rosa's or Clear Channel started calling me on my cell phone, um, asking me different advice about things. And then, you know, I was happy to just like talk to them and blah, blah, blah. And then like two or three weeks later, they would call me back and they would say, thank you. This helped us do this. This helped us do that. So I thought, huh, I should maybe think about, you know, trying to launch my business. And so that's really how Brand Approach launched um, as a marketing company to help support marketing efforts for clients and events because I had done a lot of events with La Rosa. So, you know, that's kind of a skill set in and of itself. And during that time, my husband had worked with a gentleman at Whitman Hart, which was a technology consulting firm, and he had an idea for a dot-com business. So this is 97. He was literally on the golf course with my husband, and he's like, I'm struggling. I have this really great idea for a dot-com. I know it's going to make a ton of money, but I have no idea how to develop a marketing plan to 
insert into my overall business plan when I go to venture capitalists to get funded. So my husband said, well, you know, my wife does that. And so then that led me to work with that dot-com startup, help them develop the marketing portion of their business plan to get funded. And then I realized that when this gentleman came up with the idea of the dot-com, there wasn't anybody in the world that had this idea and this concept. And in the 18 months that it took this man to raise $1 million from a local VC group, competitive dot-coms had popped up on the east and west coast uh, and had collectively raised $23 million. And literally, so like within two two years when he ran out of when he ran out of that million it was gone and i'm like exact same thing huh yeah and so i'm amazon. like wait a minute yeah well this is even before amazon so it was just ask jeeves ask oh, yeah. jeeves and e- ebay that was it and so i was like wait a minute this is like a really big problem because technology is going to be an important part of business and technology.coms are going to hire a lot of people. And if we, Cincinnati, don't figure out how to corral all of these people that are coming up with these great ideas, we're going to lose them out of the market. And so then we worked with a nonprofit tech startup networking group to bring dot-com idea guys, VC guys, service providers all together in one room to talk shop and develop a virtual handbook for that dot-com. So that's where Brand Approach, we ended up doing a lot of work our first five years into developing branding and imagery for those dot-coms, then helping them set up what their marketing plan would look like, what their PR launch would look like, and kind of the whole, the whole nine yards. So it went from marketing what I had learned at the queue in La Rosa's to helping to advise a whole new sector on how to market themselves. So I did the, you know, I worked with a lot of dot coms. We had our offices in a technology incubator in Covington called Madison E-Zone and, um, you know, worked on that for a long time and then saw the natural progression into PR and public relations because there, not everybody had a computer on their desk at the time, so it was really important that the press understand what we were doing in the dot-com world. So we would meet with the Enquirer, we would meet with the Business Courier, we would meet with local and regional tech reporters to talk about you know, our story and, and what we were doing um, to help raise awareness to the people that were investing in those dot-coms to kind of pull it pull it all together. So our first five years was that, getting them funded. And then once they got funded, doing some of the basic marketing to get started to launch. Um, so that was brand approach. And then the dot-com bust a little bit, first round of dot-com bust. But then we've just really evolved like like you all today to doing PR, public relations, um, event marketing, um, reputation management for clients, but really that consistency. Oh, nice. I bet that's big in this day and age. Huh? It oh, is yeah. absolutely huge, <laughs> especially on the recruitment side of things. I mean, with unemployment at an all-time low, relating to those recruits and potential recruits and relating to them in the right way and the amount of money that companies spend to get that recruit to either apply or in the door, you know, anybody really 
um, is looking online to find out as much as they can about that company. And if there's one negative thing that doesn't gel with that particular person, they can go somewhere else. So yeah, it's, it's, it's big. Um, and, and interesting, but it all goes back, you know, just to kind of bring it back home to what we talked about in the beginning, it all comes back to relating, having that one-to-one relationship with that consumer and what's important to them and understanding what, what you need to try and accomplish and relate to them in a relatable way. Wow. It all comes back full circle. I know it's a lot. I rambled. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's what. No, we, this is good. fascinating. This is exactly what you're supposed to do. Okay. <laughs> okay yeah. right. So that's what we do, and you know, even companies that are very much at the forefront of technology, uh, I think sometimes they're so focused on making sure that they're pushing the right technology for their business or staying, you know, in line with their competitors. They just might need a little inch up to say, have you thought about this? Or, you know, your consistent messaging and all of that sort of thing that makes sense. It's the same, you know, you wouldn't, if you were a, if you were McDonald's and you were doing a radio buy, if you were using 10 different radio stations on that radio buy, you wouldn't run 10 different commercials on those 10 stations. And it's the same thing with reputation management. It's that virtual storefront, you know, companies are not telling their story in a consistent way, which can ultimately help them. Let me, without asking for too much free advice, (laughs) I would like to use us as an example, because this is something that we struggle with now. And maybe this is something that you're, that you have expertise in. So when we first started, we kind of got, we were, we were kind of known for being a little bit edgy and taking risks and, you know, maybe putting out designs that, uh, didn't appeal to the mainstream but we that would get people talking because you know we felt like that was our edge mm-hmm. was to do that and then you fast forward to today where we're a bigger company we've got three stores we've got a lot of employees to worry about and we've we've never wanted to lose our edge mm-hmm. and, and lose the risks that we take but but we also have had to change our mindset about what what is at risk for us to you know, take a stand on polarizing issues within the city. So, mm-hmm. like, what would you say to a company like us that's trying to find that balance of like who we are and and and, and our roots and and what got us to where we are now versus like, you know, also being, um, you know, having some stability and and not mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Jeopardizing too much <laughs> what we've built. A couple Facebook we comments wanna, away from uh, <laughs> yeah. losing everything. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, you want to be fun. You want to have fun, but you also want to. You know, you're yeah. you're in business to make money to help support yourself, your family, you know, and everything else. But I mean, my immediate advice that comes to mind is to develop a virtual board of advisors, and I call them, for lack of a better term, like train brains. And just have four or five trained brains around a table and throw some ideas out and really talk about it. I mean, I know it sounds really easy, you know, simple and easy to do, but that's if I've ever been stumped or you know we've ever been stumped as a company. I I go to I think okay, who who is the best person or best group of people for me to talk to. Um, and then I develop that person or that group and I really, I have real 
conversations with them and open up open up the dialogue. So, I mean, that's that part of it for me was really enlightening. So I had, uh, we had an opportunity to work with Radio 1 in Cincinnati, which is an urban radio group. Yeah. And it's the only urban radio group in Cincinnati. This is obvious to you guys, but not obvious to your podcast listeners. I'm a white woman. (laughs) And so, you know, we started work on a contract with Radio 1. So I, I'm like, okay, I am passionate about this audience. I recognize the opportunity with relating to this audience, but I am not this audience. I need to do what I can to understand this audience. And so um, I developed a group of um, African Americans in the market from business to fashion to myths from a health and wellness standpoint to, you know, living in the city um, you know, the riots, the post-riots, the pre-riots, you know, where everybody is. And I, and I picked people from all walks of life and, and different experiences. So I talked to everybody from Jonathan Hollyfield, who was part of Cincy Tech USA and played for the Cincinnati Bengals, to Wayne Hicks, who started the women, uh, minority women's business incubator in Cincinnati to say, you know, tell me what I need what I need to know. Give me the real information. And that was priceless. And we ended up being extremely successful in everything that we did um, in conjunction with Radio 1 because I never assumed what I thought the audience would like. I thought about what's important to them, what resonates with that audience. They are different from me. I'm not going to pretend like I know what they need or I'm going to tell them what they need they're going to tell me and then I'm going to find clients that are going to embrace that and want to relate to that audience so yeah it makes total sense there you go think tank let's get it there you go it was great I'll help you can I sit at the table join the Cincy Shirts think tank (laughs) email think tank at cincyshirts.com no that's awesome that's so how can people uh, get in touch with you if they want to inquire more about your services? Well, thank you for asking. You're so great. Um, so <laughs> Not our first rodeo. If you need geofenced, where do we go? Um, <laughs> well, geo and more. Yeah. Um, they can go to our website, www.businessdnagroup.com. Um, or they can call us, 513-686-8988. Our offices are in Blue Ash, but we go everywhere and anywhere our clients tell us to. Can they call on a rotary um, phone? <laughs> if they have a rotary phone, they sure can. They can FaceTime us. Um, they can do whatever whatever they want. We'd love to talk to them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to end up with you know them being a client of ours. But you know if we can help, you get what you, you get what you give. That's right. You know? And we're going to take the 10th caller right now to be the <laughs> next one. Um, well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we end our episodes by asking for our guests to provide a coupon code that people can use online. Uh, it'll save them 20% until the next episode comes out. So That's our you, big marketing thing. So if oh, you were going to pick a, pick a oh, word. Oh, but see, here's or, the thing. If nobody listens to this podcast, no one uses a coupon, and you're like, oh, that hey, Mish character, well, she no was. One, no one uses it anyway. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they listen. <laughs> they listen. It's just fun. No one uses it. Though. Yeah, so. There's no pressure. Yeah. Is it like a number or a word? It can be anything, anything you word. want. Mish. 
M-E-S-H. M-E-S-H. So type in Mish. Also pronounced Mesh. Right. There used to be Mesh restaurant, (laughs) but I'm Mish. Mish. All right. And you will uh, save 20% on your order. Or mention Mish Mish when you come into one of our three stores over the Rhine, Hyde Park, or Loveland. And that code will be good until... The Our next, next episode. episode. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Wednesday to Wednesday. Yep. So if you're listening for the first time, please subscribe. We do an episode every Wednesday. And uh, we just celebrated our one year of yes. the episodes. Yes. So that's very exciting. We and did it. We didn't flake out on you guys. That's right. <laughs> we did two, two years ago, we did six episodes and stopped. Yeah. But now we're in it to win it. We're in it to win it. 7,000 weekly Downloads or listeners, and, supposedly. And right. Unless they're bots. He still doesn't believe it. We're trying to figure that Darren's out. Darren's still skeptical, but. I am. I right. think we're just talking to this microphone and. No way. People out. love you guys. Are you kidding? Seriously. So. Honestly, I mean that. Well, that's good cool. to hear. That's huge. We need that reassurance. <laughs> <laughs> so we can go home and make some more sweet teas. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Listen to the stars above No, I never want to play the fool So I'll never fall in love with you Michelle Giblin had to play Birdhouse coming out of that because, uh, as we heard early in the interview, she went to high school with those fellows, uh, most of them, two of the three of them, I believe. Anyway, look for serendipity do in your UCD sections. That's from back in the early 90s. If you like the bears and the raisins and that kind of thing, uh, you're going to dig Birdhouse. It should have been much bigger than they were, believe me. And uh, also on the uh, the other front there, fascinating how things have changed uh, in marketing and radio and all that, that kind of stuff, and, uh, and even in the pizza business, you know? I uh, didn't even think about that, how... Uh, La Rosa developed that number system back when people were starting to deliver pizza, like, you know, Domino's and Pizza Hut and all them. So, well, at this point, if you haven't already, I invite you to go back through the Cincy Shirts podcast archive. Lots of great episodes there, of course. Uh, John Keyswetter talking about WKRP, Amy Yazbeck, movie and TV star talking about her late husband, John Ritter, as well as her work in Robin Hood, Men and Tights, uh, Men in Tights. Uh, we had Dean Gregory from Montgomery Inn uh, talking about Bob Hope and uh, James Brown and George W. Bush. Let's see, Frank Marzullo, Randy Rico, you know, people like that. Uh, Duke Sinatra from the Gary Burbank Show. Finn Rock, Mo Egger, uh, Cash Wright, Johnny Bench has been on the show. So they've all been on. And uh, really, all the episodes are great. Haunted Cincinnati, Abandoned Cincinnati. Uh, nobody famous on those, but really, really popular episodes. People like talking about that stuff. And if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, just drop us an email, info at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line, and then tell us who you want to hear on the show. We'll see if we can get that sorted. Be sure to tell your friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the Tri-State. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing, who are actually from Philadelphia. How about that? You can find their music at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. So, uh, you know, give them a listen, maybe by one of their tunes. Maybe buy that tune. It'd help them out a lot. Uh, find vintage teas from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and so on at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have a lot of defunct teams, uh, old shopping centers, restaurants, radio stations, as we were just talking about. So uh, kind of like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And in case you missed it, the promo code for this episode is MESH, or Mish as she pronounces it, because it's short for Michelle. All lowercase, all uppercase, doesn't matter, either one will work. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. You can also use the code in our physical or brick-and-mortar stores in OTR, Hyde Park, and Loveland. Follow our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye! Cincinnati, you
I said goodbye